the world of addiction and specifically that world of using something that can land you in prison, you know, it creates a world where you take risks and you create enemies with the very people that are supposed to be, as the motto reads, to serve and protect. Now, the addiction with illicit drugs, and again, as I've stated before, is currently being identified as a disease, according to the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association. This is the only disease that I've been able to find that requires you to have committed a crime to acquire this disease. Now, what happens in that world of being dependent on something that is illegal itself causes many to do things that I will admit are true crimes, such as robbery, burglaries, and mayhem, to support a habit that continues to get extremely expensive. Now, a person who I would have identified as an enemy while on drugs, and of course, I no longer view this way, is an advocate for those battling addiction. We're now on the same team. So stay tuned for Brock Bevel, who was an undercover police officer that was injured on the job, and just like many, became addicted to the pain medications. I'll see you in a minute. I am very excited today and can proudly say that I am going to get high today with a medically retired undercover police officer, Brock Bevel. My name is Eric McCoy, and this is High Wall Clean. You know, as we all know, addiction isn't prejudice. It doesn't discriminate or occur only in certain professions. Yeah, I mean, sure, if you're in sales and your product for sale is heroin, yeah, a good chance that profession can land you in addiction easier than some. But I've had a wonderful opportunity to interview and meet with different people in different professions, including a judge, although the judge never had a drug problem, but, <laughs> but became a good friend of mine during my time in recovery. You know, I'll say that the profession of my guest today it doesn't really surprise me, although this is in a little bit of a different scenario than I sometimes would think in certain areas of law enforcement. You'll need to gain trust of dealers and probably need to test the drugs themselves, which can lead to addiction. We'll find out on that a little bit. I've heard many stories about federal agents, you know, with the DEA who got hooked on drugs. And the irony in this, of course, is that they fall into the realm of using drugs in their normal scope of practice, <laughs> giving them a great excuse to use drugs. 
you know, I could have seen myself if I hadn't acquired all those felonies joining a group like that just for the immunity. <laughs> I had the honor of being on my guest show, Brock Bevel. He has a show called Chase the Vase. Brock, I want to thank you so much for coming on our show today. Man, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm excited. I hope we hit some of those those topics that you're you're discussing because they're kind of uh, they're they're kind of hidden, secretive, and and you got to be pretty elusive to get around them. Absolutely. You know, so you were an undercover agent. I know I asked you before we got on this, but um, as far as the department or the area of expertise that you had was. Yeah, so I was on the the SCAT team, which is an acronym for Special Crimes Apprehension Team. And it is a, at the time, it was an eight to nine man unit. And we specialized in any street crime from prostitution, escort services, massage parlors, bank robbers. I mean, you name the gamut. If a crime was committed, we could get there fast. We were the team arriving. You know, I have have so many questions that I want to ask. And... I, I, I'll say this on here too. I actually may want to bring you on my other show, Walk a Mile in My Shoes, um, because I have a feeling that you've acquired an understanding of something that you may have never thought you would addiction. Man. And, you know, Walk a Mile in My Shoes is, is basically that, you know, where we're trying to bring understanding and again, working to walk a mile in the shoes of those that many have had a hard time maybe understanding. And we did two episodes on our drug war and the travesty behind them. You know, we kind of sidestepped a little bit last week. We looked at actually Black Lives Matter, but I'm returning next week to the drug situation. And actually we'll be having Tommy Chong <laughs> on her show um, a week from Tuesday, which I'm, I am very excited about. And, um, And so, you know, I wanted to ask you from the profession that you were in, and especially early on, and I don't know, I'm assuming that you probably didn't use drugs prior to doing this profession, uh, or if you did, you're not going to acknowledge it. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) But um, how much empathy did you have? Like comparatively to what you look at today, now you've got an understanding of addiction from a personal standpoint. Did you have empathy? Did you care? I, I had the opposite, actually. Um, I actually had disdain for him, for anybody that was in the process of using. I grew up in a, I mean, so to be able to answer that, I got to go back a little bit and I'll make it really fast. I grew up in a very structured uh, religious home and where alcohol, drugs, smoking, tobacco, that was not allowed. It wasn't in our home. Uh, and so... I actually kind of grew this when I saw people, I kind of stayed away. Even friends in high school stayed away because I didn't want to associate myself with those people. And I do that in air quotes because, I mean, my life has completely changed. My understanding for that world and that realm has has changed. But I remember early on in the police department, I hated patrol. Eric, I hated call to call. I hated going to those stores stupid neighbor calls, those dog barking calls, uh, a family fight. I just hated it. I just like, it made no sense why I was responding to that. I mean, like, are you not mature enough to ask your neighbor, Hey, could you please clean up the crap that your dog leaves? I mean, it's really, really mundane and basic stuff, but 
I mean, we were sent out to do some of the dumbest calls. Yeah, I could, I could see that. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, I would probably be frustrated too. You know, <laughs> but but to, to answer your question, I got a kick, man. I got like a a drive when I started finding out that I was really good at arresting guys who were carrying and selling dope. And so I kind of tried to make traffic stops on them, develop probable cause to I could get in the car, get in the pockets because I wanted to make that arrest because I felt like I was I was changing the world one doper at a time, get them off the street, help them help the community. And that's really honestly, Eric, how I felt. Did you feel at all like you were helping them, though, in your no. in your heart? Um, I mean, I, I you know, as a police, we we had a little a lot of compassion. I would sit with them and ask them what's going on. I try to get to know them a little better, try to find out what happened. And it always and I'm going to tell you this. Eric, every time I saw there was some type of trauma that they experienced in their lives that turned them into addiction, especially when you're working with with sex crimes and prostitution, there was always some type of violent action that happened, some type of trauma that let them in. So so absolutely to say that I was cold blooded. No, but I just uh, I felt like I, I that was what I was really good at was arresting those those type of crimes and investigating those type of crimes and, and work in that arena. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, and we were kind of, I think we were talking a little bit, we got off the recording last time, you know, about the drug war and things like that. And, you know, the premise of the drug war and the way it's always been their laws enacted by us to control the conduct of them. <laughs> and what's funny about it though. And, and again, I think you sort of, you experience this from a personal standpoint, though, is that, you know, once something comes around and gives you an understanding and impacts you in your life, then we change. Yeah, I mean, I have two, two situations specifically that kind of opened my eyes. The first one happened on December 27th, 2002, I believe, uh, uh, 2001, where a guy was... You know how you know what a DUI task force is. Everybody knows yeah. what those are around the holidays. Sure. You get all the motor officers around. You try to enforce drug and, and alcohol related deaths and try to try to enforce that and, and reduce that. Well, on this occasion, guys fly into our town on US 60, one of the main thoroughfares. Our motor officer goes up, lights him up, tries to slow him down, tries to get him to pull over. Pursuit happens. Mm-hmm. This guy flies through town. Long story short. He comes back into town after about a 16-mile loop, very uh, pursuit, didn't care about other people on the roadway, and ultimately turned himself in a cul-de-sac and flipped around to try to leave. And us as officers, we came in and did a felony stop on him. Now, Eric, this is where I wish a lot of people could see. You know, you hear about police shootings, you hear about police incidents, but I wish people could see that the actual effect that alcohol and drugs has on people's actions, hmm. right? When So this guy turns around, knows he's stuck, gets out of the car or out of his big old Chevy pickup truck, he's holding a knife. And as, as a police department, there was 50 officers on this scene and it, it was it was a shit show from the beginning to tell you the truth. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, crossfire. I mean, there were so many different things that I don't want you. We don't have to get into. But ultimately, he got out. We tasered him, beanbagged him, the canine bit him. We pepper sprayed him. 
We shot him with a beanbag gun. We did everything we Damn. could to get this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, well, this guy's Superman. <laughs> he, he was he was super intoxicated, right? And when he got hit in the ribs by that that uh, beanbag gun, I thought that would drop him. And all he did was like barely flexed on it. I was like, oh damn, this is gonna be wow. bad. Then he got back into his truck, put it in drive, and I shot him. I shot him right through the windshield, hit him the first time right here in the chin. Follow shot right under the collarbone. Mm. And so I remember it was kind of slow motion, man. Like we went over there, yanked the guy out of the truck. He's he's riddled in bullet holes and he's dead. And I could smell the odor of alcohol and I could, I just, his actions. And so, so to, to answer your question, Eric, like at that was a pivot point for me. Like I got him out of the truck and I'm like, what? Is it about this substance that made this guy two days after Christmas die? Hmm. You know, like what kind of power did this substance have in his life? And then yeah. it, what made it harder was fast forward two, three months down the road, depositions come out. I'm in a small room with myself and my attorney, his mom, his dad, his sister, and their attorney. Right. And this is where, when things come real, they ask me, Hey, the deposition's over. The tapes are off. Can we just ask you a question? And I'm thinking, man, you know, I'm a, I'm a father. I would want to ask somebody some questions too. And, and the mom straight looked at me in the eyes and said, if you had the opportunity to do this again, would you kill my son? Now that's a difficult, that's difficult. That's a, that's a crazy question. Yeah. And coming from mom and, and, and I think it was very, thought out and calculated and she needed an answer. Sure. And and it wasn't light. I didn't make, make a joke of it or anything. I just said, you know what? I I absolutely would have done the same thing because he put us in jeopardy and my job is to match threat for threat. And so we had to. And so that was kind of the first one. It stayed in my head, Eric. And it made me think, man, what is it about this alcohol and drugs that make people do things. Mm -hmm. The second one, and I'll make this kind of fast because I mean, I I know you have a bunch of questions, police related, and I'll get into all that. But it was on a a couple months later in in April, a we met a confidential informant on the street who was a prostitute. And I'm going to give your listeners some information here. The prostitute street level crimes, they have all the intel. They have it. They know everything that's going on. They know every single doper, every John who comes. I mean, sure. it's it's actually kind of funny. Yeah. And uh, so she approached us. She knew she had a warrant. She goes, hey, if I if I pass you on some information, can you let me walk with this information you guys want? She said a lady is going to be responding to this location with her daughter in tow in the vehicle. She's already made a deal with the drug dealer that she's going to pass off her daughter in exchange for dope to this drug dealer. Okay. Yeah. And so we're like great information. Right. And, and, and and right there, Eric, I'm thinking, how the hell does a mom get to a point where she sets up a drug deal in exchange for a man to have sex with their 12 year old daughter? Jesus. To me, I can't wrap my head. I mean, I don't know any substance. I don't know anything that would ever get me, to do that. And so it just tells you the depth where our minds can take us and the grip that this drug has on us. So here's what happened, man. She shows up. 
daughter's in tow, daughter's in the front seat, drug dealer comes up on his bike, goes open the door. We come up, we detain the guy. We go to the mom. She doesn't want to go to jail. She throws her car in reverse and runs over two cops. She catches my partner's left foot. He falls, runs over his back, breaks his back. I'm at the back right doing the cover officer. And uh, she catches my right foot, snaps my ankle. I go to brace myself. She hits me right in the knee and blows it out. And so, you know, ultimately she backed up. We were able to, she, she gave up. We were about to shoot her. She, she threw her hands up, put it in park. We arrested her and she went to jail. But now is where I need to find out who, what this is about, because now I go to my doctor with these notable injuries, surgery after surgery, trying to get me back. And my doctor prescribes me opioids. Mm-hmm. And his comment, Eric, was this, you're a cop. You'll never get hooked on these things. Wow. And I'm like, yeah. And coming from him, he had already done a surgery prior in my career from a foot pursuit that I was in and blew my knee out. And so I knew the doctor. I trusted the doctor. I loved, I mean, we had a good vibe together. And so right there, I'm never going to get hooked on these things. I'm not going to, I'm going to be okay. And that was the beginning kind of to the end. I tried to get back to work, couldn't do it. My injuries were too, too, uh, they, they said that I was a hazard, that I, I couldn't uh, come back to work. So they medically retired me. Hmm. Now, this is where my life took a switch, Eric. My do- I'm injured. My doctor's prescribing me opioids. I lose my connections. I lose my team. I lose my purpose all at once Hmm. because I'm I'm living, I'm living nitro circus, brother. Yeah. I mean, my days were nitro circus. It was like fast, high speed, resting people. It was cool. And now I'm at home changing my daughter, changing my, my son's diapers. And to me, it just didn't equate, didn't make sense. And so the, the more opioids I took, the more peaceful and calm I thought, I thought, right. It just puts that fog in there and makes me forget about all the crap going on. Yeah. You know, you fit exactly with the image of an addict, right? Somebody that is walking aimlessly in life has no passion, has no purpose for anything you did, but you lost it. You know, where some of us, we start out with never did. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right. And then hopefully at some point in time later in life, we did, we do, which is what happened with me, that eventually I did find a passion and a purpose right. in life, <laughs> which, and again, I, and that's what I tell everybody in recovery is that, you know, the people that make this long-term are those that have goals, dreams, visions, passion, excitement, you know, something that, you know, means more to you than the drug itself. Um, and yeah, you have the, you have a, you have a semi-common story with, with especially a lot of the people of today, um, that you see in the aspect that, you know, doctors, you know, doctors become the worst enemy, you know, for people to feed them, you know, to becoming addicts. Yeah. And I had three different injuries. I had a hand, I had a hand surgery where I blew my knuckle out. Totally, totally blew that, um, my right ankle and a knee. So Mm -hmm. three different doctors were treating me. And so I could, I just doctor shop, man. I told them what they needed to hear, what I I wanted more of. And 
They looked at me. I'm a clean cut guy. I got five kids. I got a wife that would attend the appointments with me. Hey, I'm good. I'm not going to get hooked on these things. But knowing that I was getting hooked on them. You know, we were, we were talking a little briefly, you know, again, at the end of the show last time, you know, I, that I am, I am pro legalization of drugs, you know, uh, and obviously not in the aspect of, you know, and these are just more of like the users, you know, I mean, obviously not people committing crimes and doing all those other things. Right. I mean, obviously don't support that in any way. We do have laws against those and we should keep those laws, <laughs> you know, against those types of things. Um, and more of it is just because I think in some aspects it does more harm than good. Um, you know, we look at the cost of drugs, how, you know, you create a black market, you, you make something illegal and it becomes it becomes, you know, extremely valuable. And when you have things that are extremely valuable, violence, murder, money, you know, greed, all that stuff comes along with it. Um, you know, we, we basically make the Mexican mafia just wealthy. <laughs> Loaded. And, and you're right, though. The fentanyl thing right now is a, a prime example of that, Right. I mean, that's a prime example of how much money is being made off fentanyl alone. It's absolutely insane. And of course, how many people are dying from it? Left and right. And, and part of it being, obviously, there's no way they're regulating it. You know, nobody knows what's in it. You know, California, you know, we got our governor here that's trying to pass this law against, uh, you know, vape juices. Because, you know, the premise, again, going back to drug laws is always is always that, you know, once we see an increase among our youth, then we want to, you know, make new laws and increase penalties. I mean, that's the premise, again, of all of our laws have always been is, is you look at every like constitutional law that's ever been, been passed, you will find youth <laughs> in every Involved. single one of them. Because <laughs> that's what, you know, kind of tags people, you know, oh, then all, all of a sudden that seems important. Um, but California, you know, I was working to pass that. And again, I was fighting that thing because to me, it's insane, you know, that, okay, so sure. You know, we could say that, you know, and it's not illegal to buy it online. Right. So, you know, you can go, you know, to a vape shop and you can buy it there, or I can go online and I can buy it from who a crack dealer, <laughs> who knows, you know, some mafia guy who knows what's even in it. And, uh, and that's the stuff that's killing me. You know, every time they keep passing these laws, prohibition is just, it's, it's a devastation. Well, and, and this is where I would say is I can't tell you that I'm pro or I don't know if I'm against it or, or not. I just, I, I know that prison systems aren't working. I know the current system that we have in play is absolutely failure. The problem is I don't know what's there, what's next. And, and you, you outlaw or you, you illegalize vaping. We're finding something else. Yeah. It's, it, we're, I mean, we're smarter than the government. Let's be honest. Especially as dealers and dopers, you know as well as I do. We're intelligent people, man. You give me 10 minutes, I'll reinvent the wheel. Yeah, and just absolutely. because we, we, we have a lot of t- and our minds going. Um, just the, our system's broke. Yeah. I mean, I look at it here in Arizona and I'm, I do this take 10 initiative where I'm trying to get people in Arizona to get out of their selves and go talk to people on the streets, mm-hmm. guys and, and men and women who are struggling. Maybe they know somebody personally, just, just connect with them for 10 minutes a day without your cell phone, but actually look at them in the eyes and talk to them. 
And I cannot tell you, brother, the amount of homelessness and addiction that is going on in our streets in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, you know, when you, you're kind of talking about the, you know, the power behind addiction, you know, the I mean, it's, and again, I don't even quite understand that myself. I mean, the thought of selling your kid or giving your, I mean, that's just doesn't even make sense. I mean, I don't care how much dope I'd be on. That doesn't make sense to me, but you know, as you know, methamphetamine being my drug of choice, um, you know, I did a lot of really stupid stuff and, you know, I committed a lot of residential burglaries and I did, you know, all these things to support my habit. Um, you know, with the state of California, if I got caught for everything I did, I would be serving like 10 life sentences because every residential burglary is a strikeable offense. And, you know, and so, I mean, I, you know, I can look at all the absolutely insane things, but also when I learned and I really studied physiological effects and I studied the brain and I studied how all this stuff works, it actually makes sense. You know, because the part of the brain that you're affecting is what the specific parts, the nucleus accumbens, which is the, and it's literally the survival part of your brain, you know? So, you know, when you're thirsty and you really need a drink and you're just dying of thirst and, you know, you drink, you take that and you just get that feeling of like, oh, right. That's the highness, you know, that when you drink water and you're thirsty, you get high. When you eat food, you get high. It's all survival things, you know, that are a part of that. So when you take a drug and you take a substance and you're messing with that part of the brain, you're setting yourself up for disaster because nothing sits above survival. Yeah. Which is also why that, you know, I mean, you, you know, these individuals will put themselves in a position where the cops need to shoot them. I mean, it's insane and it doesn't make sense. You know, I mean, you and I could sit here and we could think about that and be like, that absolutely makes no sense. You know um, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, I've ran from the cops, things like that, but I never put myself in a situation that they're going to freaking shoot me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's um, real though. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and we see it all the time. You know, one thing that I've always, you know, and I've thought about this a lot, you know, when it comes to the police officers, um, you know, it's a dangerous job. And I get that. I mean, a hundred percent, you know? Um, and I mean, I, I, I kind of like going back to the walk a mile in my shoes, you know, just the thoughts of like, you know, pulling somebody over, walking up to their car. I mean, you don't know what they got, you know? Um, I mean, you have no idea what you're walking into. And to me, that's scary, you know, and I understand like the anxiety behind it. And again, you know, you can always ask that question that like, you know, everybody can come at you and say, well, why would you have done that? I would have done it. You know, come on, like, seriously, like you would not know what you would have done unless you were in that situation. No, Eric, you're right. And, and most decisions that a police officer makes is instantaneous yeah it really is dude like you come knock on a door dudes flying out of the room with an with an axe yeah i mean this is just cra like timing is crazy you don't have a lot of time to sit back and we do we try to create that time but it, but most shootings are are instantaneous now to answer your question one thing i will say is our training is phenomenal and, and that's one thing when you talk about approaching a car, you minimize, I, I can minimize my, my damage by using my tools, mm -hmm. by using the techniques that I was trained in the academy. And so making a traffic stop is sometimes alarming, 
but you have a lot of tools to your advantage. Like the number one thing is your spotlight. Sure. You know, you, everybody's like, why does that guy, well, I can't see anything. I can't see. Well, that's to help me. Yeah. yeah. I don't want you to know where I'm at. Sure. And so there are a lot of tools and, and, and in the police department, but to speak on that in every profession out there, you're going to have that bad apple. And so you're seeing a lot of that. I, I had an officer in my department. It's himself that if he told me he was coming, like if he said, Hey, I'm coming to your call, we use call signs, one Charlie 51. Hey, I'm in route to your call. We would cancel him because we knew as soon as he showed up, he would escalate the situation. We'd end up in a fight and we'd be arresting people. Mm. When he didn't show up, we could separate the parties, have a discussion, no crimes committed. Okay. Hey, let's, let's dust it off. You go to your mom's for the night, you go get some air and everything's cool. But there are situations where police do escalate the situations yeah. just by their behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, I, you know, obviously all the ones we see on the news are all the ones that are the bad apples. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah. And I'm glad they have cameras because it does it. It, it qualifies the officers that are doing the right things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this on, you know, the one of the and again, I think I do want to get you on another show. But one of the things that we were talking about on there is like these no knock warrants. Did you guys have those at that time? Absolutely. And I loved them. And so because I think it I think it uh, legitimizes the opportunity to do police work. And, and so ours were called knock and talks. And, and a no knock warrant. I don't I, I hope it's the same thing you're talking about. Ours are knock and talks. Basically, you you believe a crime's been committed. You watched a guy go in the house. You you've seen dope. You smell dope. And. I can come knock on your door as a police officer, full uniform or undercover and say, hey, man, I believe a crime is being committed. I believe you have marijuana or, or methamphetamines or heroin in your home. Can I come in and can I can I retrieve it? Can I and, get it? No, that's not what I was talking about. So not, no knock warrants, basically, where they, uh, you know, have a they basically just go kick in your door. The problem that we've seen with it, though, is that there is a huge potential for violence. You know, I mean, just in the just in the mindset of like, if I got somebody that all of a sudden startles me and busts down my door, I don't even know who it is. You know, there's been cases where they've had the people in the house that shot a cop, killed the police officer, and they pursue the death penalty. You know, I mean, that's crazy. Well, let me let me tell you. Let me go here. I mean, I'll defend the police all day, um, but we make mistakes. Uh, and I'll tell you that there was a there's a time in Mesa where a unit uh, before me they went and so you have to understand to write a search warrant is very very detailed. Like you have to know the house you're hitting. Like you have to in the search warrant itself, you have to identify colors what it's made out of, what the trim looks like. How is it identified? Like 219 is in four, blo four inch blocks of black and red lettering. I mean, you're detailed because once you take it to the judge, judge is going to read it. Judge usually stamps it. Now I've been involved where they've hit the, the, the teams have hit the wrong house. Yeah. And so like, that's a mistake that shouldn't happen. And the guys in the home fired at them. There were, there were incidents where undercovers pulled into a driveway. Guy comes out, bop, 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 and starts shooting them. 
And, and so that, that stuff happens and that's police work and you, you own it. You, you hit the wrong house. That's, that's on you. You own that. Now the, the no knock warrants, I, I don't know about them. That really wasn't what we were doing. Um, I think that was more of a federal thing though. It might be than, yeah. than more of a state, um, you know, state thing. So I do think that was a little more of the DEA and stuff that was doing that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I had a, the warrant that I had, it was, it was crazy. And California, to me is full of unreasonable search and seizures, right? Sovereign nation. Yeah. And, and the reason like, I, I, you know, I had a, when I had, and maybe you can answer this question. So the place I was living at, so there was a girl that I was getting high with. She leaves one day, she goes, she goes home, her probation officers at her house, they find dope on her. Um, her boyfriend was on parole. They found a baseball bat under the bed. So that's defined as a, you know, felon in possession or a, a you know, in possession of a weapon. So she decided to roll over on somebody and of course rolled over on us, you know, to try to get a lesser whatever. And so when I got the search warrant at the house, when they showed up, up at our house, they came in, they handcuffed me, sat me down, they presented the search warrant. And so I decided to read it, <laughs> read it all. I was, you know, there and, uh, and here was the, here was the validation on the warrant. Okay. So there was no proof of anything that I was even doing drugs. It was basically, she told them that I worked at Kinko's, which I did that. I got off work at this time, which I did that. I lived at this apartment, which I did. And that I drove this car, which I did. And based on the truthfulness of her reporting, they got a search warrant. Now, her claim in it was that I was, I I was uh, holding an arsenal of weapons. I didn't have a single gun. And that I was selling massive amounts of dope, which I wasn't. At that time, I wasn't even doing any of that stuff. I actually had a job. <laughs> now, I was doing you know, I was doing meth and stuff like that, but you know, I wasn't selling it. I was just, you know, it was just my own personal use and which made more sense when I realized how, why there was so many of them that busted in my house. And I mean, I had these guys screaming at me, we're going to be cutting holes in your walls. Show us where your shit is. Where's your guns? You know, I'm like, dude, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. You're full of shit. You know, those guys, <laughs> so, you know, and uh, it was crazy. You know, and that was, and that was, you know, an experience I had. Now I do want to say too, though, that I appreciate the police. I tremendously do because they saved my life in 2000 and in 2001, even though I didn't see it that way at the time, but yeah, right. today I look back on it and without them, I'd be dead today. And I know it would. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm six, four, I weighed 130 pounds, you know, I was emaciated and, um, you know, I got arrested four times in six months. Two of them were, I had one of them where I had weed planted on me so you could search my car. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it was because I sold dope to a girl later found out that she had gotten arrested by the same department a couple of weeks earlier, um, which sort of, you know, you kind of put two and two together a little bit and, she rolled uh, on you. but they, yeah, but they obviously didn't have their ducks in a row to really be able to do it. Um, so they had to figure out a way to get my car. So, but I look back on it today and, you know, and I can say that, you know, I support legalizing drugs 
But at the same time, I would have, I, I wouldn't have made it, you know, because, um, you know, I, I was heading downhill quick and I, there was nothing stopping me. There was nothing stopping me. The only thing that was going to stop me was you needed to lock me up, throw me in a freaking cell. And, uh, and I was it, you know, there was nothing that was going to stop me. Mm. So, you know, from my perspective, I have huge gratitude, you know, for the police. Um, and, um, again, do they do everything right now? Do they do no. everything legal now? <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, but you're going to have those guys. Every profession does. Yeah. That's yeah. the hard part. Absolutely. Yeah. This, it, you know, the, the only problem is the police have guns, <laughs> but no, they, you know, again, I, I've actually had an opportunity to personally thank the police officers who were involved in my arrest. Um, ironically, and it's funny because, you know, my, my story continues on with once I got clean and sober, I decided to do alternative sentencing. And I opened up a program, you know, that I did have an opportunity to um, really get to know the sheriff's department because I was working with them. I was um, going into the jails and I was visiting people. I got to know and become friends of district attorneys, you know, and mm. judges and things like that. And, and so that also really changed my mindset on everything. I saw them differently. Got it. I saw them as people. <laughs> Just doing a job, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, uh, and, and again, I, you know, I got a lot of respect for the police. I mean, again, I, you know, I think it's a crazy job. I think it's a dangerous job altogether. I mean, I, you know, I mean, you don't know what you're going to run into, you know, when you, when you walk out the door and, um, and I don't know how I'd respond. You, you respond by your training. Hopefully. Yeah, you would. You do it enough. It's repetition. So, um, so now you're clean. 11 years. 11 years. And what did it take? Did you go into treatment or? I did, man. I made a mistake. Hmm. That's really what happened. And I usually, I try to tell people, hey, don't do how I did it because my, I got lucky and it worked. I uh, woke up one morning, took a, uh, walked into my bathroom, opened my medicine cabinet, removed some opioid, took a drink, shut that. And you know, oh, there's a glass on most cabinets. It shined into my room and I saw my room and I witnessed the destruction that I had caused in my life. I'm like, dude, you're living in a crack house. You're a crackhead, right? I had done search warrants on so many and I'm like, oh my hell, dude, you live in one. So of course, a type personality, I'm pissed off. I yank open that cabinet, pop every pill, dump them all down the toilet and flush it. And now I realize I'm in trouble. I didn't have an exit plan, man. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have, I, I didn't talk to anybody. Nobody knew I was going through it. And so there came my seven day detox process and the worst seven days of my life. Uh, the, the most difficult process I ever went through. My, the best opportunity I had to connect with my higher power. <laughs> but to be honest, I mean, I, I craft myself. I urinated myself. I threw up on myself. Uh, the vial coming out was that purple green crap that everybody talks about. But the worst part for me was the chills and being hot and being cold and being hot. And then every time I wanted to throw up, it felt like my backbone was just going to come out my mouth. Like I didn't have any more energy. And so 
seven days, man. I just, uh, I just went through it. I knew that I needed to do it. I didn't have an escape plan. I had just gotten a refill of, of a bunch of prescriptions and I couldn't go back to the doctor. And plus I was having a buddy of mine. This was a big mistake I did too. Um, and it tells you kind of the extent of my addiction is I had a buddy that I was giving pills to. He was taking them, selling them and bringing me a, a, a cut of it. Mm. And so, yeah, here's a, here's an undercover cop retired living the same life, man. Dylan, Dylan dope. I wasn't actually doing the hand to hand, but I was 100% involved. And so I was just smart enough not to touch the, the touch the dope. You know what I mean? You know how that process runs, but, but it's uh, yeah, that was my process. I didn't go to recovery. Uh, after that, I just aligned with some amazing people. I leveled up, you know, they say you're as, as smart as the five people you hang out with. And so I just started hanging out with the right people and I started elevating myself and changing who I was. And then I realized, man, you, you have a voice. I mean, how many undercover cops are now sober? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what I did is I took my story and I use it today to bless the lives of men and women who are in law enforcement, first responders. Actually, now it's just anybody that wants to give me a call that wants help. We help them. Mm -hmm. That's awesome, man. You know, the, you touched on the other important thing, you know, and why it's difficult for people to get off because it sucks to get off, Oh man! you know, and it is, it's, you know, as, as an opioid addict, as you are, mm -hmm. you know, you truly understand how important endorphins are um, because you didn't have any, <laughs> that's man. the, you know, that's what happens with opioids is that your body stops producing them because you're giving yourself plenty of them. It doesn't need anymore. And, uh, and then when you stop, you get to. So if you ever want to know how important endorphins and what they actually do, everything you felt when you stopped, that's what they do. <laughs> We're worse pain. And, and you're right though. That's today why I don't use. Yeah. Not only do I love my sober life. I mean, I really, there's so much freedom in being sober, but the fear of ever detoxing again, just absolutely yeah. encompasses me. Yeah. And it's, you know, for meth, for me, it's, um, you know, it doesn't have the, obviously the sickness involved in getting off, but what it does do is it puts you in a massive depression, like deep, mm. deep depression to like suicidal type. I mean, that's, you know, um, cause I relapsed in, um, 2013, went on a six month crazy run and, um, realized it still wasn't working for me. <laughs> so I ended up, but, but man, it was like, and I knew what was coming. I knew what was coming. And it was the first time in my life that I ever got clean without having to get arrested. Mm. You know? And, um, and I think part of it being that, you know, I had a lot more knowledge than I had the first time. Um, I knew that I could do it because obviously I had been clean for 11 years at the time. And, um, but yeah, that's, that's the tough part. I mean, that's, again, another reason why people can't stop is they, you know, they, you, you know, drugs are fun when you choose to do them, but when you have to, that's when they're no longer fun. Mm, man. Yeah. And I guarantee, you know, when you were out, you know, arresting people and stuff too, that I guarantee that there were a lot of people that you probably arrested that hated their life, hated what they were doing, would do anything to stop doing it but they didn't know how. Absolutely. That's the key. The, nobody, I mean, tools today, they're everywhere, but they're hard to implement. When you're on it, it's, it's Ooh. tough, you know, 
And it's, you know, and that, and that was the thing too. I remember the last arrest I had in 2002, January 3rd, 2002. And I remember talking to the detective, you know, after he, um, uh, you know, they searched all my room, found more stuff and dope and all that kind of stuff. And I was, they, and then he drove me to, to the jail and I talked to him all the way there. And, uh, you know, and I, and I kept telling him too, I was like, Oh man, you know, I was like, I hate my life. That's why I kept telling him like, dude, I hate my life. I want to stop, but I don't know how, you know, I said, I don't, you know, and because every time that I'd go to jail, I'd, I'd have this mindset of like, you know what? I want to stop. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of this. And then I'd get in jail and those cravings had hit. I mean, the cravings had hit so powerful. I could taste it. I could, you know, I mean, it was like, and all I could think about was getting out and getting high. And um, I mean, it's like a, just drives you, you know, and I'd post bail again back. I'm doing it, you know? Um, and of course I kept stacking things up, you know, making things worse, but but I remember even going back that time and just saying, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. But then I even told him too. And I said, you know what though? I said, I don't know though. <laughs> I said, I want to stop. I don't want to do this, but ask me like four hours from now. Mm. <laughs> it might be different. When those cravings are smacking you in the face. Yeah. It's brutal. Yeah. So what do you do today? So, uh, do you work or are you work? Are you retired? You're right. I'm retired. Medically retired. I, I have a second job that I, I mean, I own chase the vase and mm-hmm. it basically what it is, is I, I, I podcast as well. Like you, I love mm-hmm. your podcast. I appreciate you bringing me on. I had you on mine, chase the vase. Yeah. I also do a second one. Like you, I, I, I work with a ex NFL football player, Max Hall, mm-hmm. and then a, 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 a therapist from Utah called, and it, it's called, the agents of recovery, just three dudes talking recovery, just like we're doing here, man. I love it. And, uh, and that's what I do. I, I try to have a voice. I realized in my active addiction that we're as sick as our secrets. And so when, when I wasn't talking about recovery, I was sick. I was hiding it. I was maniacal. I was lying about everything. But once I got open and started talking recovery, then my recovery changed my my life completely changed mm-hmm. yeah i want to say something real quick to you too that you know i don't want to kind of i didn't i didn't want any of this to sort of overpower the you know like you were a police officer that's just a role you know um you're my friend we're brothers in arms you know what yes, i'm saying sir. and um and so i don't want you know i didn't want any of that kind of stuff to really sort of play into again because the police officer that's just a job that's a role that you play that's not you <laughs> you know it, I mean? it was it absolutely was you know and that's an important and i appreciate you saying that but but i get it i mean i still today feel like i'm a police officer you know i still have that in the back of my mind i i wish i could do it um yeah but it's still a, it's still a role it's still not role. it's not you and that's not what i always you know because like i always say you know like hey, what do you well, you know i'm a counselor right i'm a counselor i'm a teacher i'm a you know that kind of stuff but those are just roles, you know, who I am is not that, you know, I'm me, you're you, yes, you know, sir. and, uh, and so I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that too. Cause I, um, I didn't, I didn't want any of this to come across like, you know, um, because, um, because again, man, we're, like I said, we're brothers in arms, man. We're doing, we're doing the same thing. We're fighting the same fight, you know, and, uh, totally appreciate it. Yeah. 
Um, so I want to ask you, and I always like to ask people this is, uh, if you were to give a message out to people that are struggling, that are suffering, what would you tell them? There's hope. Honestly, like in, in active addiction, it's hard to look up, man. It's hard to see tomorrow. It's hard to see past my next high. And if you could just slow down, take yourself out of that situation for a minute, contact the right people. There's so much hope out there. There's so many wonderful people out there that want to help that have gone through this. And there's a path. Just got to open our eyes, right? Mm, man. <laughs> but yeah, it's tough, man. It really is. It's tough to, you know, when you're, you know, I, I always think about with, you know, doing like shows like this and doing what I do, you know, the sad part is there's a lot of people out there we'll never reach. There's a lot of people out there that will never see this, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are holed up in, in, you know, just vacant buildings that are, you know, sleeping in dirt and, you know, never going to have that opportunity, which, which kind of saddens me, you know, because I wish there was a way that we could figure out, a, you know, you know, come up with ideas that we could possibly reach those, those people, you know, and those are probably the people that need it the most, <laughs> you know? Hey, I want to thank you, man. I really appreciate this. Um, this was a great show. And, um, and like I said, I'm going to, I really, I think I want to bring you on my other show too. I'm going to talk to Lona, my, my co-host, um, because they're, um, we've touched on some things that you would probably fall under the, under the expertise that we need in, in these arenas. Invite me anytime, brother. I appreciate what you're doing, man. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate what you're doing too, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep fighting the fight, brother. Yes, sir. And, uh, all right. I appreciate it. Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning into another episode of high wall clean. Keep getting high. Well, let's do it clean. I'll see you soon. Bye.